Hi, welcome to episode 3 of Exploring Astrophysics with me, Vikram Bamri. Today I will be talking with Professor Matthew Evans, who is designing new technologies to improve advanced LIGO, a laser interferometer that detects gravitational waves. In 2019, he was awarded the New Horizons in Physics Prize for his research on present and futures ground-based detectors of gravitational waves. How did you get into the field of astrophysics? I had sort of a strange path into astrophysics. I was actually, as an undergraduate, I was working on biophysics. And I was working on using interferometry to make images of uh, biological tissues. So this is a technique which has now become optical coherence tomography, and so OCT. And I, I was working on some sort of precursor to OCT as, a, as an undergraduate. And then I went to Caltech as a graduate student, thinking that I would do biophysics, but I wasn't uh, really careful in my choice. I, I went to Caltech just because it sort of sounded like a fun place to go. Uh, and when I looked more carefully at what the biophysics professor there was doing, they were like dissecting monkey brains or something like this. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't think I want to have anything to do with that. <laughs> so I just had to look for you know, some other, other job. And LIGO group at Caltech at the time, this was yeah, sort of early 90s, was taking students and, and they're obviously interested in interferometry. So I thought, okay, maybe I can use some of what I learned as an undergraduate to do, to do LIGO type stuff. It wasn't really what I was used to because I had been thinking I would do physics, but it, was, it seemed like a good job. So I started doing that, but that's how I got into astrophysics. It was essentially accidental. Oh, so you mentioned LIGO. Do you want to explain a bit about what the, uh, what it is and what its aim is? Yeah, sure. So LIGO stands for the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And the idea is to use a very large sort of Michelson-type interferometer to measure small perturbations in, in space-time. So that sort of sounds complicated, but many undergraduates have seen a, a Michelson interferometer in, in the lab. It's typically a little red helium-neon laser beam splitter, which splits the beam, the laser beam, into two paths and a couple of end mirrors which reflect the, the beam back to the beam splitter. And this, this simple interferometer configuration is actually very sensitive to motions of the, of the mirrors and was originally invented by Michelson, I don't know, in the 1800s, I think. So a long time ago using not a laser, obviously a different sort of light source. And the LIGO is like a, a giant version of that where we try to use the inherent sensitivity of this sort of interferometer to make something that we're not really interested in measuring the motions of the mirrors so much as distortions of the space between the mirrors. And, and again, it sounds complicated, but the measurement is just like any other Michelson. You measure the change in the light which comes out of the interferometer. And if, if a gravitational wave goes by, and a gravitational wave is one of these distortions, then we'll see a change in the light level that comes out we measure that on a photodetector, similar to a photovoltaic cell that you would see on people's roofs to generate electricity. And, and that's, a, that's our signal for gravitational waves. So it's a you know, giant laser interferometer is what LIGO is, practically speaking. The, the goal is to, is to measure gravitational waves, which we now do regularly, 
And typically they're coming from black holes or neutron stars, these stellar remnants that are floating around out in the universe. So these measurements must be incredibly small. So how did you go around combating the sort of noise that you would get from around the, around the space you work in? Yeah, so the first thing that you discover if you build a Michelson in the lab is that you get disturbances from just vibrations of the mirrors that make up the interferometer moving. If they're bolted to a table, then the table uh, vibrates. And it, it's only vibrating by sort of microns, which normally seems very small. But for an interferometer like this, that's a, that's a lot of motion. And so you first have to fight these sort of vibrations. And we do that by mechanically isolating our mirrors from the ground. And that's, that's sort of the first step is that we have many layers of isolation to, to keep the ground vibrations from moving our mirrors. And, and then the next thing that you see, and you see this also in a you know, small lab environment is that the acoustics from the air, so just you know, when you talk, you're generating pressure waves in the air and those pressure waves lead to noise in an interferometer. And to keep that out of our gravitational wave signal, we have to put the whole thing in a vacuum system. So this is a challenge for LIGO because the size of the interferometer is uh, four kilometers on the side. And that means you need eight kilometers worth of ultra high vacuum tube to make this work. So it's a, it's a very large vacuum system. In fact, I think it's the world's largest ultra high vacuum system by volume. But anyway, it's, it's a problem in and of itself to build a good vacuum system for this. Once you've done those two things, then you've gotten rid of the sort of largest and most obvious noise sources. And then you're left with some things that are more fundamental. The two really fundamental noises that we continue to try to improve on by using better technology are what we call thermal noise. So this is just the Brownian motion of the molecules in our mirrors. The interferometer doesn't operate at absolute zero temperature. It operates at room temperature. So that means that everything is sort of vibrating thermally. And those thermal vibrations are actually a dominant noise source for us uh, in, in part of the detection band. And then the other fundamental noise that we, that we you know, work against is uh, quantum noise. And this really comes from the fact that we're measuring a light level and, and quantum mechanics tells you that the light you're measuring will be made up of photons which arrive individually with some sort of random timing to them. And the randomness in the arrival time of these photons makes a fundamental noise limit for us as well. So those are the two sort of big things that we work against all the time, are the thermal noise and the quantum noise. So I believe the first measurement of gravitational waves when two black holes collided was measured in 2015. Is that the measurement you expected to make or did it come as a surprise to you? It was a surprise uh, to I think most of the people in LIGO. So we were expecting neutron stars, which are a different sort of stellar remnant. They're typically about 1.4 times the mass of the sun. And they're like gigantic balls of neutrons. Uh, they're left over when, when fairly large stars supernova and they leave this, this remnant floating around in space. If two of these things are going around each other, they can, they can emit gravitational waves and eventually coalesce into a, a black hole. You know, these binary systems like this of two neutron stars had been detected in the past using radio waves. Uh, so those are pulsars that I'm talking about for, for people who know what these things are. And 
So we'd already detected many such neutron star binaries in our galaxy. And one of them is also famously known as the first indirect evidence of gravitational wave emission. This is the Hulse-Taylor binary. And there they could see the orbit of the pulsars shrinking over time in a way that was consistent with Einstein's general relativity, the way you'd expect given the loss of energy to gravitational emission. So that was what we expected to detect first uh, were binary neutron stars. And, and we also expected it to come a bit later. So I think essentially we actually detected binary neutron stars in 2017, more or less when we expected to detect them. But we were surprised by the black holes that we detected earlier than that. So LIGO is a pretty big project. So what is your particular role in the um, functioning of it? Yeah, so my, my role, originally I was a graduate student working on the interferometer. That was my experience up to, up to that point was interferometry. So really, really working on the hardware. And my role sort of grew from, from there to working on the control systems that, that keep the interferometer running and you know, sort of outward from the, from the detector. And eventually that means that now that I'm a faculty here at MIT, in the labs, we are working on experiments which are looking for new coatings, for instance, and this is to reduce thermal noise, the use of squeezed light, which is a technique from quantum optics to reduce thermal, quantum noise. And like, so my role right now is, is one of sort of leading these research efforts that are happening in the lab. And there are a number of graduate students and postdocs and research scientists that I work with to, to run these uh, research efforts to find better techniques and better materials to, to build LIGO interferometers. So uh, you mentioned you've detected the black holes colliding and uh, two neutron stars. Have you detected any other things in the uh, last five years? And what do you plan on? What, what do you think you will detect in the future? Yeah, so those, that's all we've detected so far are binary black holes. Now, many of them, so several tens of binary black holes and a few binary neutron star coalescences. These are essentially perfect sources for uh, gravitational wave detectors because they're you know, binary like that consists of two very heavy masses going around each other at speed approaching the speed of light. So, so it's a really ideal source for making gravitational waves. And there are other sources that we expect to eventually detect, but they're, they're not as good a source for gravitational waves, so the signal is much weaker. The classic example of that is a supernova explosion, so in particular a core collapse supernova. We, we know that it must emit gravitational waves, and if one of these events happens in our galaxy, there's a very good chance that we'll detect it. But the rate of, of core collapse supernova in our, in our galaxy is, is fairly low. So it's a few per century. And we don't really know how big that signal will be. It's not as clean a system as these binaries. We can't easily just do a first principle calculation from general relativity to understand the, the size of the signal. But a number of, of numerical simulations have been done. And the conclusion is that probably systems that are from neighboring galaxies as signals from neighboring galaxies will be too weak for us to detect. So that's, that's a source that we expect to eventually detect, but we don't really know when that's going to happen. And then there are any number of sort of more exotic uh, sources. People talk about cosmic string cusps 
other sort of defects from expansion in the universe, things, things like this, which I guess I would say theorists speculate about, but we don't really have any direct evidence that these things exist. So there might be these sort of surprises that wait for us as we make more sensitive instruments, but I couldn't tell you which of those is, is real or when we might actually detect them. You, may, you mentioned uh, making the detectors more sensitive. That must be a very important part of detecting much more, uh, more, more events. So how do you uh, plan on making detectors more sensitive? Yeah, so there, there are two main avenues. One is to work on these two techniques I talked about. So reducing the thermal noise, which mainly comes down to the optical coatings on the mirrors. And the other is reducing the quantum noise, which we can address either by increasing the laser power that we use or by the use of, of the squeeze light, so tricks from quantum optics. And those are two ways that we can reduce the noise in the current facilities. And in fact, there's uh, an upgrade happening essentially right now to the LIGO facilities, which will put in new, some new squeeze light source and, and use that to reduce the quantum noise farther. We're already using squeeze light, but we're going to improve our techniques there. The next thing that you can do is, is really to build a larger facility. The gravitational wave signal that we measure is proportional to the length of the, of the arms of the detector. And that's why we have these things that are four kilometers long right now. That was sort of the largest we could conceive of for the first generation instrument. Right now, the, this future detector uh, collaboration I'm, I'm working on is aimed at building uh, either 20 or 40 kilometer long detector. And that will make the signals that we can detect five to 10 times larger. And that makes all of the relevant noise sources you know, somewhat less important because the signal got larger above the noise. So those are the two main avenues. I think that the improvements that we will get by changing technology in the current facilities will be factors of two or three relative to the advanced LIGO design, the current detector design. And if we build a new facility, we could you know, get sort of a really large leap a uh, factor of 10 or more beyond the, the design of the current instrument. And have you ever thought of expanding into space? Is that feasible to have a detector in space? Because wouldn't that re reduce some of the atmospheric noise? Yeah, yeah. so there's a, a mission concept which has been around since before I was a graduate student and it's called the LISA mission. And that's a laser interferometer space antenna. So that's, that's where the acronym LISA comes from. And the idea there is to have three spacecraft which fly in sort of a triangular configuration. And they would fly around Lagrange point, which is I think behind the earth in, in our orbit around the sun. And the, the orbit of these spacecraft would keep this triangular shape more or less stable and would allow for the measurements of gravitational waves that went, you know, that passed through that, that detector. The, the good thing about going into space, as you say, is that you avoid a lot of disturbances that you would otherwise have. The bad thing about going into space is that it's very expensive to get your hardware there. And once it's there, you can't work on it. So it has to just work on the first try. Both of these problems are, you know, they're not insurmountable. There's things that we can, we can do. And in fact, the LISA mission was recently, 
think funded is the right word, is planned for launch in the early 2030s. So that, that's a fairly recent change. There was a Pathfinder mission that demonstrated some of the technologies in space. And so I expect that's really going to happen early 2030s. That even with a, a space mission like LISA flying, it's a, it measures a different frequency range of gravitational waves. And that's because the spacecraft fly very far apart. And so the signals that it can detect are much slower in frequency. And that means that it will detect signals from much larger black holes. So instead of the sort of 30 solar mass black holes that we're detecting now, the LISA mission will be looking for things that are a thousand solar masses in, in that range. And the smaller, lighter things that we detect, like neutron stars and, and relatively, let's say, you know, a few solar mass black holes, really won't be, won't be the main signal for a, a LISA-type mission. So the detection of um, gravitational waves has been quite a big breakthrough in the area of astrophysics. What's, what, what, what sort of things have contributed to What if people started researching on now that the existence of the waves have improved? Yeah, so there's, there have been a number of, uh, let's say, fundamental physics type developments in that measuring gravitational waves has allowed us to constrain theories of gravity. There, there are lots of theories of gravity out there besides general relativity. And they try to address, for instance, you know, where is dark energy coming from? Where is dark matter coming from? So things which we know, you know could be a result of some alternate notion of, of gravity other than general relativity. And the measurements we've made have actually been very consistent with general relativity. So it means that we've constrained a lot of alternate theories of gravity. We've also you know, the, the measurements of gravitational waves so far have actually put pretty tight limits also on the sort of parameters within general relativity. There aren't many, but we can say that, for instance, the, the graviton, which is, in, if you had some quantum theory of gravity, this would be the thing which carries your gravitational force. And it propagates at the speed of light, just like the photon, to within a part, so I think 10 to the 16. So that was something that uh, was really effective at, at saying, yeah, general relativity is, is, is right as far as we can tell. That's really the right theory. And we know at some point it must break down, but for the test that we can make using these signals, it looks like GR is, is doing quite well. So that's one area is just sort of fundamental physics and, and our understanding of uh, gravity as a fundamental force. The other area that has gotten a lot of attention uh, is a result of the binary neutron star detections. And this is understanding these neutron stars are, like I said, these giant balls of neutrons. And it's a state of nuclear matter that you can't easily reproduce on Earth. In fact, I think it's just impossible to reproduce on Earth. So these measurements of bi-neutron stars as they run into each other are, give us access to a realm of nuclear theory that we don't really have access to in any other way. Uh, so that allows for developments in quantum chromodynamics, uh, and, and really theory of, it's called the equation of state of nuclear matter. So that's a whole, whole other realm that we sort of get to see in, into using gravitational waves. And just the, the number of detections, sort of the population of sources, tells us about astrophysics. So we didn't know that these binary black hole systems were even out there before we started detecting them. And that tells us about how stars die or how massive stars die, because these very massive stars are producing the black holes that we then measure. And for the neutron stars, we didn't know what would be the rate at which 
these coalescences would happen. So by measuring the, these signals, we can make an estimate of what the population of these systems are out there. And it turns out that from this, we, we now understand that the binary neutron star coalescences, these things running into each other, is probably the major production site for a lot of heavy metals uh, in the universe. So gold and platinum and uranium and things like that seem to be dominantly produced in binary neutron star coalescences. And that includes all of the heavy metals that we have here on Earth that were produced in some ancient binary neutron star collision when the galaxy was young or something like that. So you measured measuring the signals of gravitational waves. So what can you get out of a, a measure of a gravitational wave? What sort of information can you learn about the collision? So what we get is a signal, a waveform, which is it's fairly simple. It's like a sine wave and it increases in frequency as the binary gets tighter and then cuts off when the two objects, whether they're black holes or neutron stars, run into each other. So by measuring exactly the shape of this signal, we can tell what are the masses of the two objects likely to be. We can get some constraints on how rapidly they're spinning. So both black holes and neutron stars can, can have some you know, spin to them. And that allows us to better understand the origin of the system by looking at what the spins are. The, for neutron stars, the signal gets complicated as the two neutron stars get close together because then you start having to worry about the you know, tidal forces on this nuclear matter. And so the way in which the phase of that sine wave changes actually tells us about the tidal deformation of the nuclear matter that is these neutron stars. And then the end of the signal where the two neutron stars run into each other gives us you know, sort of a detailed look at this, this collision of, of these two giant nuclei. That's something we haven't measured very well yet, this post-merger signal as it's as it's known. But we expect that with more sensitive detectors, we'll get a good look at the post-merger phase as well as the in-spiral phase. So, you see, so you're going to be um, involved in the uh, construction of the new LIGO. So is that, do you, is that probably what you're going to spend a large proportion of your future working on? Or are you planning on moving to other fields? In the I expect to be busy with this Cosmic Explorer is what it's known as. I expect to be busy, busy with Cosmic Explorer for quite a while. Getting these large facilities built typically takes decades. So we were hoping for an early 2030 kind of operation of Cosmic Explorer, but that depends on when we get it funded. And so it's not as complicated or as expensive as a space mission, but it's still, still time-consuming and tricky to get the funding required to build a facility like this. But So we're hoping for 2030s. Uh, and that'll be phase one and then phase two, sort of an upgrade sometime in the 2040s. So yeah, it'll keep me busy for quite a while. Okay, well, maybe when I graduate, I can come and start working. That'd be great. Yeah. Yes. Um, I had a great time um, talking to you. I hope you did too. And thank you so much for being on my show. Thank you for having me on your show. And I wish you the best of luck as you go forward.